this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Okay, next up, we've got Bobby Albert. So you can split this interview into two parts. The first chunk is about how Bobby built his company from five employees to 150 employees and credits core values as a big part of his success, codifying a set of cultural values that he kind of espoused and and reinforced. Now, as you hear in the interview, I'm immediately skeptical when people talk about values in a company. I find it such an overused sort of uh, kind of notion and oftentimes not really well executed. And in this case, I found Bobby helped me get a little further in my thinking on this one. He really pushed me to kind of think about the difference between aspirational values that a lot of companies have versus real company values and the difference between the two. So I'll let Bobby do a much better job than I can describing that. But for me, it was helpful. The second part of the interview, I think you'll find interesting because it talks about the sale of his company, the Albert Companies. Again, 150 employees. It took him almost 11 months to sell the business through three unique offers from the same company. The unique part about this, or the interesting part about this from my perspective, is is Bobby was able to get the offer up 120%, so more than double the original offer through just patient negotiation. You'll also hear the difference between the abundance mindset and the scarcity mindset. Um, we'll talk about how he 5 x his revenue and his profits. The, the kind of secret to getting discretionary effort from your employees and how that really manifests itself in a company with values. Um, and again, lots to talk about on aspirational values versus real values. So without further ado, here's Bobby Albert. Bobby Albert, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. I'm really excited about uh, being with you today. You are my first guest from Wichita Falls, Texas. Thank I've you. Never even heard of the place. How big is <laughs> how big is Wichita Falls? Oh, it's a little over a hundred thousand people. See, I always thought it was Kansas. What am I getting wrong here? Well, that's very common for people to get us mixed up. Uh, and so uh, it, it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Good deal. So tell me about this company. You had a company called The Albert Company. It's very creatively named. <laughs> tell me a little bit about this company. What did you guys do? Well, it uh, in my father started this business in 1938, and it was an upholstery and refinishing business. Uh, and then in the late 50s, uh, when people would, would ask, this is before, you know, furniture retail stores, a lot of them and all those kind of things, they would ask us to redo the whole home. And so in the late fifties, people would say, after you get through doing all these nice, you know, nice thing, would you mind moving them? Because we're worried about the movers, you know, tearing all this up. So we found ourselves in the, in the moving business. Uh, and I, uh, uh, uh grew up 
in the business, hung out with my dad, you know, went to the bank with him, to the insurance company. Uh, and, uh, it was a moving and storage company was mainly, uh, the business. And, uh, in fact, they used to, when I was a little kid, I, I thought they were, uh, they were, you know, they were excited to help me out, but, uh, what it was is to get out of their way at, at the warehouse, they used to call me the automatic pad folder. So, and that was the, you know, the blankets that are used to put on people's furniture. And I, I didn't realize nobody wanted to do it back then because back then they didn't clean those moving van pads and they were filthy dirty. So, uh, but when I, uh, uh, going through like junior high and, uh, in high school, some people junior high, they may call it middle school. My dad finally let me go out on a moving job. And, uh, I remember my dad telling me something and I don't know as a kid in junior high school or middle school, I don't know how I understood it, but he said, Bobby, when you go out there, uh, I don't want you to act like the boss. And somehow I knew what he meant. And so th from that point forward, I, you know, during summer, I would work on the trucks and things like that and in the warehouse. And uh, and then I went to college, uh, their university uh, here locally. Hey, Bobby, i got to stop you there. When he said, I don't want you to act like the boss, did, did he mean like, I don't want you to act like the boss's son? Yes. Okay, got it. Got it. And say, hey, my dad owns a company. You got to do what I say. You, yeah. He wanted you to start on the bottom rung of the totem pole, so to speak. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that because uh, – uh, it, it was uh, a mindset that I, I gained from the very start of uh, when I went out there, I would take one break to their two. Uh, I would do the dirty jobs that nobody else wanted to do. I would. Uh, uh, so it uh, I clearly understood what and I didn't realize how valuable that was going to be, because uh, even though I, I worked with these uh, men that were on the trucks. And I started when I was in, at the university, I was doing some of the bookkeeping for my dad and some of the paperwork for him, uh, is that it, I graduated from college at the age of 20 and I finished it after three years. And that was in 1973. And my father died of a heart attack uh, right after I graduated. And, uh, it, it, it was a, a, a very challenging time because it's a lot of money today, but in 1973, it was like a mountain to climb because we, uh, we were in debt. I didn't realize this, but we were in debt, uh, uh by $70,000 and our gross income for five employees, uh, was less than $90,000. When you say gross income, you're talking the same thing as top line revenue. Yes, top line revenue Got was it. less than ninety thousand. So you can see that a lot of the revenue went to just pay for you know the employees. And in addition to the five employees, you know I was trying to support me and my wife and even my mom. And uh, my wife reminds me often that uh, back then that I would give her uh, twenty dollars a week just to go buy the groceries. So it was a very, very tough time. But Bobby, how did, if you don't mind me asking, how did, so your, your father passed, did you inherit the business from him? Did you buy it from your mom or how did, what was the actual transaction that, 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 that ultimately led you to own the business? Okay. That's a very good question. Uh, there was a point in there that 
uh, my mom, um, she, we, I, I gained the, uh, a 51% of the ownership of the business and she owned 49%. And that was part of an estate planning at, you know, in the early goings. And cause it was just a proprietary ship and my dad didn't, he had a fairly weak, uh, will, uh, it wasn't very clear. And of course he didn't do any back then. I, I don't think people did very much on the state planning except for some very wealthy people. How did you but, come to own 51% and your mom owned 49? That's interesting. Cause usually it'd be the other way around, right? I mean, it, it would travel typically to the spouse of the, the deceased. Yes. Well, uh, you know, I, I, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, really in reality, my mom really owns the business. And so I asked her if she would uh, be willing to uh, give me the ability because I was putting all this effort into the business and and we just had to have some honest discussion about, you know, uh, if she would agree to something like that. And of course, it was uh, it, it was easy for her to agree to that. So that's the way we structured it. But then later on, she died and um, and. And of course, uh, uh, this kind of gets into a complexity, but, uh, uh, we, part of this whole process, we created, eventually we, my wife and I had three boys and, um, uh, we created trust for them. This is going back into the eighties and, uh, and her ownership went into, uh, that trust of those boys, um, in a, so, um, so, but I was the one overseeing all the trust and everything. Got it. So, Bobby, t- I mean, I realize we're, we're all the way back to 73 and you sold the business in 2011. Um, if, if you could point out uh, maybe one or two inflection points or milestones, you know, that, that you think over that, you know, whatever it was, 30, 40 year run that, that you feel was seminal in your growth that like, could you look back on that 40 years and say, you know, this happened and that was a turning point for the good for our business? Yes. And in fact, it's, it's a, (laughs) it's amazing. Uh, well, let me just say this is all I knew when my father died is just put my nose down and just go to work. And, uh, I didn't know any I just didn't know anything any different. Um, so, but I'm, I'm uh, kind of one of these people, uh, uh, you might say uh, like an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity kind of mindset. And I, 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 it it was kind of like, I just kept looking forward to, to the opportunities, uh, in my industry, my company had been known as an innovator. Uh, in a lot of aspects. And so uh, there was, uh, in 1989, there was a significant uh, uh, leadership aha moment that I had. Uh, And uh, in uh, uh, probably one of the biggest things that happened in 2005 is after two and a half years, uh, I discovered what my core values were. For many years before then, probably 15 years uh, before then, about 15 years, I, I knew what the purpose was of our company and and had a vision for our company. Uh, but the thing I was missing 
uh, was the core values of our company. And it took me two and a half, uh, half years to introspectively figure out who I was. And I, I don't know, if, I don't know too many people I'm, that have introspectively looked at, you know, what, what do I stand for? What am I all about? Why did I say what I just said? Why did I do what I just did? And, uh, and those core values, what I finally realized, they were always there. It's just I finally figured out how to express it. And the re reason why I bring this up is that uh, when I finally discovered that and we uh, shut down the company for a half a day, introduced it uh, to our people, um, our company's growth, had a, we had significant growth at that point. We... From 2000, the end of 2005 to 2011, when I sold the company, during that time period, and you know what the economic uh, times were, you know, late 07 and 08, and you know, and is during that time period that is that our revenue grew over, I mean, our, our revenue grew about five times, and our profit grew uh, over five times, and our EBITDA grew um it about five times during that time period. So I, I, of course, there was a lot of things going for us during that time. Um, but that's part of some of the things that attracted uh, our company uh, from a public traded company that was interested in buying our company. So, Well, good. Let's get into that. I mean, um I guess I, I, I guess I'm trying to push back a little bit on this on the 2005 to 2011. So in a six year run, you 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 five folded your revenue, your five extra EBITDA. Um, why? You know, is it possible that the, the development of the values was just a coincidence that it happened to coincide with the, with a time in your business that that you were ready to sort of get that growth? Why are you sure? that the codification of your values was one of the key ingredients in, in enabling you to that, that level of growth? Well, uh, and that's a very good question. Uh, some things that were going for us at the time was uh, we had a culture in our company uh, that many people, even going back in the late nineties, kept saying, Bobby, you ought to write a book about your business, about your leadership, about your culture. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, okay, that's nice. Thank you for, you know, suggesting that. Uh, but we had a, uh, a certain level of a culture where our people, uh, that worked for us, they knew that Bobby Albert really cared for. However, at the same time, they knew that Bobby expected high performance to a level of excellence in the company as well. And what I saw, once people begin to understand this is who we are, is that I saw with my own eyes, you know, what human resource or HR people, uh, you know, they call it discretionary effort in which people gave over and above what was required of them. And prior to uh, uh, that announcement, and it, about six months before I finally realized uh, the core values of who I was, 
is I, I came up with a statement. Now, I came up with this statement. I still didn't know what my core values were, what, but I wanted to be a values-driven company that achieved results, not a results-driven company that has values. And, and uh, I didn't realize how important that phrase was when I came up with it. Uh, but it had a big factor in uh, my values and the values that were always in place, that we were already hiring people, even though it wasn't expressed, we were already hiring people um, of those same values. Our HR department just knew that this is what Bobby expects. So um, does that help answer your question? Yeah, it does, but you've got my skepticism radar up because sometimes I gotta be honest. Sometimes I find the whole talk about values and culture—it's a little bit too kumbaya for me. <laughs> I, I, you know, I I kind of get a little bit squeamish about the whole thing because it it feels j just so squishy and not uh, not uh, not real. It, it's all very sort of in in the ether. Uh, and so help me like you've thrown out some pretty big numbers, five X growth, top and bottom line. And, and I'm struggling to see how codifying the values of we care for each other. And, and yet I expect really high performance. That's not squaring for me. I, at least maybe you've got to get it down to the next level for me. Like, so I can't believe it was just you standing up on a half day, you know, retreat and saying, guys, I care for you. I love you, but I expect high performance. There must have been more to the story to drive that kind of growth. Fill in the blanks for me. What am I missing? Well, if this would, you know, maybe help is that uh, we, when we were acquired, it's interesting that the. Uh, the company that acquired us, they did it for strategic purposes. But even though they did that, they used the financials uh, to purchase, you know, the company. Uh, after they had purchased us, they were shocked with the size of our company is uh, the strength and the sophistication of our leadership team. And they were also surprised over the, the culture that we had. Uh, the company that acquired us, uh, they have over 13,000 employees and still today they're trying to figure out how to implement, uh, our culture, uh, into their organization. And they, they're doing a little bit, you know, over time. Now, if this may help you a little bit, if I maybe take it out of, out of the, you know, my company, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with the, you know, the author, uh, uh, Jim Collins. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, it, you know, of course he's known for that, for his book, uh, you know, good to great, but he also wrote another book called Bill to last. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what he, and he, you know, he's a researcher and, and, uh, what's fascinating, um, is that in his research, uh, they, you know, they had a lot of assumptions when they went in, but then they discovered some things that, uh, kind of surprised him. And one of the things is they was, uh, you know, he had his research, his financial data on public traded companies from the year 1926 to 1991. And what he found, uh, he found a, a group of companies that out 
during that time period outperformed the stock market um, uh, by two times. Now, if you think about it, you would want to invest in a company that outperformed the stock market two times during that time period. And I'm talking about the average uh, uh, stock market exceeding the average stock market improvement by two times. But what they found in their research was a small group uh, that outperformed the stock market 15 times during that time period. So they, they thought there's something, what's, what's the deal, you know, with this, this small group of people. And when they dug into it, they found the companies, uh, that, that had this performance. There were two things that was very unique about them is they preserve the core and stimulate progress. And by preserving the core meant they they from the time and many of these companies at the time had been in existence for over a hundred years. They had found that that those companies never changed their core values or their purpose throughout that whole time frame, and that was what they meant preserving the core. But stimulating progress means everything else is on the table for change. You know, organization structures, uh, personnel. Uh, you know, policies and procedures, uh, products, uh, services, uh, organization structure, you know, you, you could go, you know, on and on and on. Those were constantly changing all the time. So in Colin's case, I mean, I think he talks about the development of values being a, a sort of a group effort, meaning it's the company the values of the company are often heavily infused by the owner's personal, uh, you know, code of ethics, et cetera. But, but generally companies have, have absolutely evolved a different set of values than the owner. In your case, when you're describing the process you went through back in 2005, you, you said it in a very personal way. You said, you know, I thought about what my values are, not what our values are, but what my values are. It sounds like for me, you've got a unique twist maybe on the Collins work in the sense that, was it, were you intentionally saying these were my values? These are Bobby Albert's values, not necessarily the Albert Group's company, you know, the Albert Company's values. These are your personal values. And it was important that you put a stake in the ground and say, these are my personal values and I'm using my company as a vehicle to extend those. Do you see the, do you see the distinction I'm trying to make? Yes, yes I, I do. And it's a very valid question to ask is that uh, if I can go back to Jim Collins in their research is those core values came from the leaders, not from the employees. Because it had to be, you know, this is the way I describe it. And let me say this with my, with, when I introduce these core values and we could spend a little more time, uh, you know, how did we spend in a half a day? Cause it's a very interesting story there is, uh, I didn't present it like these are, this is me and you need to accept it. And, and now let's get on with our work. That's not how I really, that's not, it's not my style. That's not how I approached it. The but what the uh, w the way I describe it to our employees is: Look, let's be honest. You, as employees of the company, over the years you're going to come and go, and I'm I'm stuck here. And so, 
these core values are driven by a leader and the leader acting out those core values in an authentic way. See, what's scary is for, and and I, I find a lot of, this may be some of the things you have experienced or maybe you have heard. It's scary to me because I know a lot of companies are trying to think we need to have our core values. But what they do, they purchase some value cards and you can buy them from anywhere from 50 to, you know, maybe as many as 300 cards and you lay them out on a table. And when you have, let's say if you have 50 cards laying in front of you, you seem to gravitate toward a, a group of the 50 cards that are laying on the table. Now, the challenge is, is people selecting cards that they aspire to be, not really who they are authentically. So what can, what can harm a company and do more, do damage is the leaders choosing values that are not authentic and they don't behave it. They don't live them out. And when that happens, it, uh, it creates a lot of disruption in the organization uh, when the leadership is not living them out in an authentic way because they were just as they were things that they aspire to be kind of a thing. Got that help a little bit? Yeah, no, it, it does for sure. Because uh, we all, yeah, you're you're right. We all aspire to be trustworthy and thought leaders and like all these sort of motherhood and apple pie comments. And then when we fall short of that in, in our day-to-day lives, it, it just shows a a lack of consistency that people that you know employees find really destabilizing. So yeah, no, I get that. Uh, let's jump ahead to the actual acquisition because I because I, I, uh, you you know you didn't you didn't stay a five person company. I, I think in '73 you guys were a five person company, but by 2011, I think you said you, you had a hundred and something like 150 employees. Like it was a you know big company by then. Yes, uh, and I use the term about you know, about us selling the company is, uh, passing the baton. Uh, and if I can maybe, uh, talk a little bit about the priests pre asking to, you know, for us to sell just a little thing that may help the audience that are listening today is that, uh, something I did back in, uh, 2006 is I was already talking with our three sons uh, that someday, and I'm thinking of family succession planning here when I say this, is that I'd rather, because uh, I'm thinking ahead, because I'm I'm uh, I'm a visionary, and you know I don't know somehow I've been blessed to look way far down the road. Is uh, I was talking with our boys that I did not want them if something happened to me, I didn't want them to be thinking they need to come in and manage the business. Uh, I was trying to prepare them to be board of directors and that they would hire uh, professional managers to run the company. Now, also, uh, prior to selling the, you know, going back into early 2000, uh, I joined a CEO uh, group in Dallas, Texas, which is a, you know, about a two hour drive from Wichita Falls. And uh, we met once a month. And I got really excited to take our company to the next level. 
And that's when I made sure and develop a, if I can, you, this is kind of like a, a play on words, but you have to listen real close is I, I was doing everything I could in our company to develop leaders. So, uh, but what the biggest challenge is, is do you have a, uh, a team of individuals or individuals on a team? And it sounds like a play of words, but you see in sports, um, uh, a lot of teams, they're very talented people. Their competency is, you know, just amazing, but they don't play together as a team. And so, uh, one of the, you know, one of the challenges for us as leaders is to be able to develop, uh, individuals that have all this talent to operate like a team rather than the other way. Cause you see other, you see these teams where they're the player, you know, in sports that the player is almost more interested in, you know, their, you know, their Facebook following or something like that than they are in, uh, you know, playing well as a team. I, but I, what, I got you, but I, I got lost a little bit in terms of your, cause you were talking about your three sons and, and, and sort of succession planning. So, Maybe let's close the loop up for me on that. What did your sons have to do with this idea of of uh, individuals who play on a team? Well, the I, I was just kind of taking you through a process of the you know prior you know before being asked to sell the company, uh, a little bit of the history, and uh, I was sharing about how I was uh, already preparing our boys to serve as board of directors, uh, if something ever happened to me, this, these are things that were going on even before, you know, before the, the company that acquired me before I even knew they were even interested. How did you become aware they were interested? Well, they ask. How did that maybe take me? Like, was it over lunch? Were you at a trade show? Like how did, how did, how did that come up? Did they call you up out of the blue? Well, yes, uh, we were working with them. Uh, you know, our business, our moving business was on a, you know, nationwide basis and they, we were, uh, we were partnering with them in some service. So we had been working with them for a long time. I just never knew that they would even be interested in, you know, in, in purchasing the company. Uh, and, Emotionally, because I was already uh, thinking about taking our company to the next level, uh, is that we had got an investment bankers involved. They, I was already visiting with some capital funds to help us. You know, you got to, you know, think. You know, I'm this innovator, this idea man, and in our company, well, I was also interviewing people to serve uh, as board of directors, and we had drafted a business plan. We hired a fractional or part-time CFO. We started having our financials audited. We interviewed and hired an attorney. I started having state of the company three uh, uh, meetings with all employees three times a year. We started sharing financial information with them and it, we tied in a bonus program in doing that. So I was emotionally before I, see, I'm thinking about growing the company and then all of a sudden, um, a partner of ours said they would be interested in in acquiring us. And so emotionally, I knew I was going have to give up uh, some of the ownership of the company 
uh, through these capital funds. So it was it was an easy for me. It was easy uh, for me to consider uh, talking with these people that uh, this the people that are eventually acquired us. So, so you're thinking um, we're going to take this thing to the next level. I'm going when you say raising capital fund, you're, you're saying you're going to sell a. a a, a proportion of your business to maybe a private equity investor. So you'd already gotten emotionally sort of comfortable with the idea of, Hey, I'm not going to be the sole shareholder anymore. I'm going to have to bring on other shareholders to help us get to the next level. So That's the, right. So it wasn't that much of a stretch to then say, well, maybe, you know, if I'm willing to sell, you know, sell 40%, maybe I'm willing to spend a hundred, sell a hundred percent. That's right. So yep. got it. So um, so they say they they say listen, we're we're thinking that we'd like to acquire your company. Um, who was it from the other side? Was it the CEO of the buyer, head of corporate development? Like, what was the title of the person? They uh, were they were one of the corporate vice presidents that I interacted with in this partnership of this uh, uh, business and. Um, we had a, a relationship that had been going on for, you know, maybe at that time was, oh, uh, I'd say about, um, oh, probably about close to 10 years. So. And what was your reaction? I'm looking for your, like, the first words out of your mouth when he says, <laughs> I, you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to explore the idea of buying your company. Yeah. What were the first well, words out of your mouth? Do you remember? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I was shocked. Uh, I was impressed, uh, and I was very grateful. Um, and so, you know, we hung up and I, I gave it a lot of thought, a lot of thought, discussed it with my wife. Um, and, um, I, uh, one of the things that made they, this, you know, in my case, it worked for some people it might not, uh, because, you know, when you're involved in something like this, you, you don't want to tell the whole world, you know, so, or I, I don't think so, but it, the key players in the company, I call them the executive team. Um, they were my, like my inner circle. I, I shared it with them after talking with my wife and why, uh, you know, they knew the history of what we were trying to do. And we agreed that we would not discuss it, uh, um, you know, with anyone else. And so once they felt comfortable about it, uh, we initiated the first, uh, phase of a dual di diligence. Uh, so, um, the, uh, and, and then they came, um, they, they have a two corporate jets and they flew down and, and made an offer and they did, and it was all done off site cause we didn't want to spook our people. And that's kind of when the negotiating started. What was in it for the executive team to sell the business? Do they have shares? No, they sure didn't. Uh, and it, it's really interesting because we worked so well together. I think they were surprised that Bobby trust in sharing this with them and asking for their help because you know, the, as you, you know, as you know, selling a, an organization, it, it, it's, uh, nothing very simple and it's not easy. And I, I needed the best advice I could get. And so that's the reason why I pulled them in because it was going to impact them. Uh, I have a, this is kind of part of our culture. We, 
we have these button icons and one of them is the one, two, three. And what that means is that at the beginning of a decision making process and before you make a decision is that, uh, you ask yourself three questions in that who can help me make a better decision, who will be impacted by it and who's going to be, who's going to have to carry it out. So the, this executive team, uh, I knew they could give me the best advice they, uh, they could, they were going to be impacted by it. And, um, and, uh, they're going to have to help me carry out in the integration and things. So, it's an interesting question. They didn't know this, but once the sale was over, I gave 10% of the, uh, of the sale price to our employees. And these, these people that were part of my executive team, uh, man, they, they saw some pretty big checks. And the 10%, was it uh, equal amount for each employee or was it, was it, did it correspond with their level? So it's more senior people got a bigger check than the more junior people. Yes. It, it, uh, it was proportioned to, um, a lot of different things that were considered. And thinking of the executive team and the size of that check, would it be, would it have been, uh, you know, like one times their, like an annual salary, total compensation or 50% or two times the total compensation for, for a given year. Right? And the reason I'm asking this question is, is I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, what, what incentives do I have to give my executive team to ensure that they're excited about the transition and they stay on afterwards? So like, was it kind of one time salary, two times salary? What, what did you choose to, what would the size of the check without having to share the number itself? It, it was a, a one, a one year salary. Fantastic. And so a big check, a meaningful check for, for, for those, for those folks, but, but you chose not to share it with them in advance, your intention. Do you, in retrospect, did you think that, was that the right call? Was that risky or, or do you think that was the right call? <laughs> okay. That's a good question. Cause I didn't even think of it at the time. <laughs> it was, I think they do they do things a little different down there in Wichita because yeah, yeah. you're a trusting man. Well, uh, you know, these people, we've worked together, you know, we've, so, uh, <laughs> it, uh, I did, I, I didn't really think about it till we got closer to the, you know, it's time signing day. So. Good deal. So let's get in. So they fly in on these jets. Are you, is the M, are the M&A bankers that you were talking to about potentially raising, you know, like bringing in say a private equity group, were they representing you at the table? Did you have representation when they came in to visit you? No, they, uh, no, they, they weren't. And, uh, basically the fractional CFO I had a lot of experience in this area. And of course the attorney that we had selected, um, had a lot of experience in, in this matter. Uh, in fact, <laughs> it's kind of interesting that I, I, I was told this later, you know, after the acquisition that the general counsel of, uh, the company that acquired us, uh, the, he was constantly telling his people that was negotiating with me, you better do the right thing because Bobby's got it one of the best attorneys I've ever come across. And did you think he was being genuine in that comment? Yes. Yeah. He told me this afterwards. <laughs> got it. Got it. So, yeah. so when did you first get a whiff of what they were willing to offer you? 
Well, uh, it, the whole process from the time I was asked to the actual completion of the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the sale, it, it went for 11 months. Uh, and I've come to realize because I've helped the company, uh, and as a consultant to help them with ac other acquisitions, uh, that doesn't seem to be unusual. Uh, so, uh, it, it was an interesting time to go through that whole negotiating process because they made an offer and actually, um, cause I knew where the company was going, um, is that I was asking something way above what they willing to, uh, you know, uh, willing to, uh, give, uh, but they came back with a second offer. And so, and it still wasn't a, enough and the negotiations, uh, stalled for a while, but, it, uh, it, it, uh, you know, we, uh, when, when they stall, it wasn't like people were mad at each other or anything. It's like, uh, you know, maybe we need to pause for a moment and we need to step back from it and, and, and see what happens. Well, out of the blue, they came with a, a third offer, which was even better than the first or the second. And that's when I accepted it. And we went through in the preparation of the, uh, the letter of intent, the LOI. So there were three offers back and forth. What was the, the difference between the first offer on a percentage basis and, and the third and final one that you accepted? Was it, was it a hundred percent more money or 50% more money? Just it was, uh, that's a good question. It, uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but, uh, it, it, uh, it was, uh, I would say close to about a 50% increase and what the final offer, uh, would have, uh, made it. Um, the, it made it, uh, I would say about 120%, um, improvement from the original offer. So there was a 50% improvement from the second to the third. Yeah. And then, but, a, but a total from the first offer to the, to the one that you actually signed, it was, it was more than double essentially by the, by the time you finished negotiating. Yeah. In fact, they, they, uh, I think they were surprised that, uh, but after they acquired us and we, they could, they saw how well we were performing, uh, they got their payback in three years. And when you say, you know, the offer that you finally did, uh, what proportion of it was cash versus stock in the acquirer versus earnout? Okay. Uh, it was all. It was cashed out. And so they, you had no earnout or management responsibilities after they took over. Well, okay. I did, uh, they did prepare, um, a, uh, uh you know, they did uh, prepare a, a non-compete agreement and we had an employment agreement and I continued in, you know, being employed with them, uh, for a period of time. And then I realized that, uh, uh, you know, I think that it's time for me to start my second half of life. And that's kind of what uh, I'm here today talking with you. So when we go from the first offer, what, why did you think it was worth what it, you know, what, what were you drawing from to assume that it was worth, you know, more than double what they'd originally offered? Why did you think it was worth so much more? I mean, you're, are you, do you have some sort of benchmark or you've been told a number like, or was it just a number you were hoping to get? What was the, 
It was a lot of hope uh, because it was based on a, from our business plan, when we were wanting to take the company to the next level and implement some things that, uh, some services in the marketplace that didn't exist at the time, and they, in some cases they still don't exist, is uh, part of our business plan. You know, we had, uh, 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 you know, multi-year uh, projection, and we were looking at uh, what we were planning on accomplishing in the, you know, in the multiple years. So, uh, it, and it turned out, uh, uh, our company even grew, uh, you know, it, it even grew without, uh, the, uh, us being able to implement the full fledged business plan. So, so you had a taste of what you thought your business could be worth. Now you knew that if you'd sold a big tranche of it to some private equity group, you would you would own much less of it, but you still had a sense of what that remaining chunk, your remaining equity would have been worth and you were like, well, if I've got a a small, you know, smaller mid-sized chance of getting this for the company, you know, you've got to come to the table with a with a pretty good offer for me to walk away from the potential at, you know, some huge number. Is that yes. the kind of the kind of rough math you were doing in your mind? Yeah. Yeah. And we were, uh, at the time, uh, you know, we were already seeing our company having a rapid growth, even though we had not, um, uh, started implementing the business plan because we had not take taken any funds from any capital funds. Mm, got it. Got it. So just having that growth plan gave you a sense of optimism and, and really bolstered what you thought the business was worth. Yeah, but I, I have to be honest with you. It was challenging uh, to be able to uh, say this is the number we're looking for uh, without having without disclosing your your business plan, because they could have been, you know, a competitor of ours. So how did you navigate that? <laughs> they never did ask. And so when you throw out this outlandish number, like, so they give you the first offer, which ultimately let, ultimately was a pittance relative to what you, you ultimately sold the thing for. They, you th did you then counter offer and say no to this, but, but I would accept this? Did you yes. give them? An, you did. Okay. Yeah. And, and, uh, and how close to how close to the final number was the, the number you threw out? Well, uh, they end up uh, paying uh, more than what I originally uh, <laughs> actually what I actually said I wanted. How does so, that work? Next time I buy a car, I'm going to have you negotiate it for me. <laughs> well, just call me up, you know. <laughs> but uh, but they, I tell you, because we performed so well after. Uh, I see. They. It it was like this. This is good. This was a for from their perspective. This was a good acquisition because their payback was in three years. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you know, if you're growing and you're increasing the top line and the bottom line of the business, I mean, one of the things, and I guess I'm talking directly to to my listeners right now. One of the things that the other side of the table is going to realize is the longer they hold out in this negotiation, the higher the price is. Right. So. Uh, that's one of the levers you can pull. And, and, and in, in your case, it sounds like you were doing that. Like you weren't in any hurry to sell this business. And so you were growing and as time went by and they stretched out the negotiations to 11 months, guess what guys, the number just went up. 
because our numbers just went up. Is, yes. That's kind of basically yeah. got it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So what was the so what would a typical company be, sell for in your industry, and what was the multiple of EBITDA that you ultimately sold for? I mean, you just give me a range if you want. Uh, the uh, typically in our industry was somewhere in the area of three to four times uh, EBITDA. Uh, we end up uh, negotiating a high single digit uh, multiple. All cash. Good for you. That's a, that's an amazing outcome for sure. So they, <laughs> it, it sounds like they came in at a kind of an industry standard ho-hum multiple and you said, that's not going to cut it guys. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I was, I think they, because it was a strategic buy, not a financial buy that is they were interested. What helps in negotiating is they were interested and I was interested in it being a win-win, not I win, you lose. And it's, it's hard to do that. What was strategic? What was the strategic element? Like why was it strategic for the acquirer? It was because we were one of the, the, the type of service we were providing uh, and as a partner with them uh, was very unique. And it was, we were one of the, only ones in the industry that was providing that type of service. And they saw an opportunity that if they, uh, their business uh, is about uh, 20%, about 28% of their business uh, could have been impacted if, if they lost us as a, as a supplier that they were partnering with. So, uh, they, I thought they, I think they saw it as a security blanket in protecting a very profitable business that they had. Makes sense. Um, thank you for sharing the story. What are you doing now? What's it, you, you alluded to the second act, but I, I didn't get details. So what are you doing now? Where can people reach you? That kind of stuff. Well, I, uh, I call that like the post, uh, purchase uh, is, uh, for me personally is, uh, you know, I had to announce it to my family and things like that. And, and then, uh, I selected a wealth manager and went through a process of selecting that and, uh, re redid my whole estate plan. Uh, afterwards I also reviewed, you know, all the life insurance policies I had, cause I had a lot of life insurance policies related, you know, toward the business and those kind of things. Um, and of course, you know, the CPA, uh, prepared the income tax returns, which was pretty amazing with the, how much taxes that we paid. But, uh, I, uh, 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 when I exit from the business, uh, I call it my second half of life. And uh, for a period of time, I was, I, I kind of had an idea what I wanted to do, but I was still searching. And, uh, I, uh, uh, went and participated in, uh, with John Maxwell. Uh, I was allowed to be part of a group of 16 people that, uh, spent where John Maxwell, you know, he's a speaker and author. He mentored me for one of the 16 of us. They call it the table group, um, for one whole year. Uh, it wasn't too long after that, that, uh, I uh, was part of a group of 50 that spent a day with uh, Jim Collins that we talked about earlier. And then and 
several months later, uh, another group of 50 of that I was part of, we spent a, uh, a day and a half with Ken Blancher. Um, I, part of this was formulating what, what I was thinking that, uh, the direction I was going to go, because I kept coming back, uh, to, uh, that people have been after me and after me to write a book about the leadership that we used in our company and the type of culture that we had. And so I started speaking, um, and eventually my wife and I, we created, uh, it's called, uh, the Bobby and Susan Albert, uh, foundation. And so if I'm able to, uh, which I, you know, profits that are generated from this business that I have right now in my second half of life, uh, goes into that foundation and then we'll use that money, uh, to contribute to, uh, organizations and causes that my wife and I want to support. And we're already, I'm still think, you know, I'm going back to family succession planning and, and I'm, I've already been coaching our three boys that once my wife and I are, are out of the picture, uh, I'm, I'm looking for sustainability of what I'm doing right now that, uh, they'll use the funds, uh, to fulfill, uh, the purpose of the, of the foundation. So, uh, and, and just to help them along they're you know, they're all young boys. I've even, you know, helped them go through an estate planning process and, uh, that's taken care of now for, for them. And, uh, at first I think they were wondering, dad, what, are, you know, you know, what, if, what, <laughs> why do I need to do all this? But, uh, I think they'll see the benefit of it someday. Yeah, I'd imagine. Bobby, what's the name of the book? Well, it's called Principled Profits, and the subtitle is Outward Success is an Inside Job. Love it. Principled Profits, Outward Success is an Inside Job. Have I got it right? Yes. Bobby Albert, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.